Welcome to Trial and Medical Error, where we bridge the gap between medicine and law and unlock groundbreaking trial techniques. Join hosts Brendan Lupitan and Greg Uniton as they share novel insights and strategies to help you confidently tackle the most complicated cases. Welcome again to the Trial and Medical Error podcast. I'm Brendan Lupitan here with my trusty partner, Greg Uniton. And continuing on with our discussion of trial takeaways, we're going to talk about, to protect the names of the innocent, the uh, Marco versus Dr. K trial that Greg and I just took to verdict about a month and a half ago. Right, Greg? That's right. So where should we start reliving this wonderfully painful experience? (laughs) Almost a spoiler alert there. Uh, So why don't we start at the beginning and tell us a little bit about the background, the factual background of this case, Brendan. Sure. So I can remember this so vividly. It was in 2020, so pretty much heart of the pandemic. And the client, Marco's uh, fiance, found her way to me. And I I spoke to her and she was really uh, beside herself, distraught about what had happened and what they were going through. And, and I came to learn from her that her fiance, Marco, was a police officer and a member of the SWAT team, had injured his ankle at work, had suffered a uh, trimalleolar fracture, and had surgery. And then over the course of the weekend, had evolving pain that was not responding to his pain pills and had had a couple of conversations with his surgeon, Dr. K. And from their perspective, had been led to believe that uh, Marco's pain was your typical post-operative pain. And ultimately, they decided to go to the emergency room on their own. But by that point in time, it was arguably too late. And what had been going on was that Marco had developed a condition called compartment syndrome after his ankle surgery on a Friday. And uh, because of a confluence of factors that he had a a nerve block that was probably partially working, uh, that he probably had a high pain tolerance as a tough guy, that he was prescribed pain pills to help with the pain that he was experiencing, the diagnosis or the concern that something serious was happening was not recognized as early as we felt it should be. And as a result, Marco's muscle tissue and nerves inside of his leg were actually dying over the course of the weekend. And I just listened to what he had been through. He was now in the hospital at the time that I was uh, speaking with his fiance, and she was telling me just the horror of a story that he was going through. Multiple surgeries, cutting dead tissue out of his leg. He was out of his mind. I could hear him literally moaning in the background of these phone calls with his fiance. And I wanted to learn more about what happened. And so we went forward and we got medical records. And I'm not sure why, I just felt really compelled about the case. I felt that these two young people who had their whole life in front of them and still do have their whole life in front of them, but really got a bum deal. And I felt that Dr. K who is a good orthopedic surgeon, has done a lot of good surgeries, has helped you know, many, many patients. But I just felt strongly that he did not take as seriously and did not really listen to his patient like he should have over that weekend. And that he gambled a little bit with our patient or with our client's well-being. And that led to a really serious delay that led to you know, a life-altering injury because As the story goes, surgery Friday, pain problems over the weekend. By Monday morning, essentially all the muscle in Marco's ankle was dead and had to be cut out over the course of 9, 10, 11 surgeries over the course of two years. So really devastating injury that ended with him needing to have his ankle fused. And this was a 30-year-old guy with a promising future in the police and SWAT team and uh, it really took a bad turn for him and has forever set him and his fiance and his son off in a different direction in life. So with that said, Greg, why don't you chime in with our general thoughts as medical malpractice attorneys when we get presented frequently with orthopedic medical malpractice cases? 
Well, sure. Yeah. And it, I don't know if you mentioned that this was a, a compartment syndrome situation. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So in compartment syndrome is this condition, which is a, a very serious complication, not only from surgery, but it often, often comes up in the context of trauma, even before the patient undergoes surgery. Compartment syndrome can even come up in the context of a, of a marathon runner for similar reasons. But what it basically means is that there's this gigantic increase of pressure inside a muscle compartment. And our arms, our legs, they're, they're made up of muscle compartments. There's just not one single muscle in our lower leg or, or our upper leg. It's separated into separate muscles that have different functions for the movement of the parts of our body. And the muscles are encased by almost like a, a sausage casing. And when an injury, especially a traumatic injury occurs, like a fracture, which Marco had in this case, because of disruption of blood vessels in the area, it increases pressure. There are difficulties with circulation and, and venous drainage. And you have, like I said, this increased pressure, which actually compromises the ability of tissues to be perfused by capillaries and swelling occurs and it, it cuts off the blood supply to those tissues, the muscles and the nerves of the body. That is the complication in this case, much different than what we often see when we're evaluating potential cases involving orthopedic surgery. Getting back to your initial question, often those complications involve infections more often than not, either superficial infections of the incision itself or infections of uh, surgical hardware that is often placed to repair a fracture or to repair some sort of abnormality in a patient's foot or ankle. In those cases are historically very difficult to prove. There are issues that most medical malpractice attorneys understand simply with securing an orthopedic surgery expert who will support your case. It's just something about that particular subspecialty of medicine where they are a little bit reluctant to criticize their fellow orthopedic surgeons in a court of law. But beyond that, it, it's just difficult to prove what exactly was going on with an incision, especially with an infection or, or with a surgical area, because you're relying mostly, in most cases, on what the patient or their loved one is saying. Sometimes there are photographs, but photographs don't, they capture one moment in time. There could be redness on a photograph. You could sort of make out drainage. But when the patient gets to the doctor's office, invariably, the findings are not so concerning for infection. So it becomes a he said, he said, he said, she said type of a situation. In those cases, we, we tend to steer away from for the most part. Yeah. And I think that we steer away from them for the most part for a lot of reasons. I think you look at the medical literature on the complication rate of just about any orthopedic surgery, and the, the rate of complications is pretty high compared to a lot of other surgeries out there that, that we deal with. So, you know, number one, there's the argument, and legitimate or not, that even in the best of hands with the best of care, that there is a known significant percentage of complications that develop after these. And the public is well aware of that because I think more than a lot of other areas of medicine, a lot of people have had or know people that have had orthopedic surgeries. They know the risks themselves and they know somebody that's had a complication, maybe they have, et cetera. They just know that it's, it's fraught with risk. At least that's the public perception. Then the informed consent documents are formidable in the orthopedic cases. And it's just the numbers of, I mean, we looked at these cases, we look at them so frequently and um, almost always for one reason or another, we, we declined to take them on. However, compartment syndrome is a little bit different of an animal because it takes time and there are warning signs that oftentimes are documented and it can be misdiagnosed. And when it is misdiagnosed, it leads to a very devastating injury. So compartment syndrome, we've had a lot of success in working these types of cases up. The other reason, though, that I got into Marco's case was because, you know, a lot of times in medicine, it's difficult to win hyper-technical cases where it's a battle over, you know, medical minutia, and you're trying to get the jury to understand in the context of, you know, telling an interesting story. But in this particular case, the fiancé and Marco 
had documented, you know, within a day or two, they wrote down precisely what they remembered saying because they were so shocked when they had learned what was actually going on with Marco's leg over that weekend that he had had compartment syndrome, this condition that they had never heard of. And they felt really betrayed that we were telling the surgeon all of this stuff. We were telling him about the fact that Marco was having tons of pain, that he was having tons of swelling, that he was taking his pain medications and they weren't working. And the doctor just said, you know, this is normal. You know, this, this is normal post-operative pain. We trusted him. And if we had just known, you know, we would have gotten medical care much sooner. And then we get the medical records and the medical records say nothing in them about these phone calls that occurred on a Saturday and a Sunday between the patient and Dr. K. So then I'm thinking to myself, well, look, we have hard evidence that these phone calls transpired. I have a written record from my clients very credibly of what they contend was said. There's nothing in the medical records that was said or, or any reference to these conversations whatsoever. And I believe that that weighs very heavily in our client's favor. Well, did you look at this as a traditional delayed diagnosis of compartment syndrome case from the outset? Is that how the case was worked up through your experts? Well, I guess it was a little unorthodox in the sense that nobody knew what was actually said during these phone calls. We got the phone records. We knew that the phone calls occurred, but nobody knew precisely what was said. And so the experts essentially looking at the medical records, looking at how things unfolded, and you know, looking at what our client said, had to say, look, if what your client says is accurate or to be believed, then it would be below the standard of care that the uh, Dr. K was negligent, that he did not do what he was supposed to do. And that clearly led to a delay that caused harm to the patient. On the other hand, if we assume that Dr. K will inevitably, you know, during the course of litigation, say that this is not what the patient said, or he had told the patient to go to the hospital and the patient didn't do it, then that wouldn't be negligence, which is an appropriate way to approach under our certificates of merit and establishing case in Pennsylvania. But it was not a case that could, at least on the medical records that existed, be based on, oh, well, here the patient said they were having this pain at this time, and so you could move forward that way. But that was actually what was interesting to me in the case, because I liked the idea of polarizing the case that, look, you either believe this highly credible police officer, SWAT team member, you know, sworn to protect the public and so forth, very stoic, straightforward, not embellishing type of guy versus a doctor who made no records in the medical notes about what had supposedly transpired. But then as we got into the litigation, we discovered that after the fact, after that it was found out what had happened to our client, created essentially a secret letter about what had happened and sort of a, an exculpatory, a self-preservation type after the fact letter that had been kept a secret until the litigation was filed. I mean, so I felt and still to this day feel very strongly that, that this was a winning case. Now, in medical malpractice, does that mean you're going to win every time? No, not necessarily. But I felt that the factors were there with likability of my client and his fiance and his friends, high quality person, very believable, terrible, terrible injury versus doctor who essentially had after the fact statements created to support his version of the events that if it's one or the other, either our client said what he said, doctor's at fault, or he didn't and doctor's not at fault, that, that that's the kind of case that, that we want to get involved in. And at the end of the day, I believed, I just truly in my heart believed in our client and I believed in, in what had really happened. Oh, you're not supposed to use your heart, Brendan. You're supposed to use your brain. Come on. I know. It gets me in trouble sometimes. But do you think if we know the background of Dr. K, and I'll ask you to discuss that, but my question is, do you think if Dr. K was a different doctor in terms of his work in our community and his reputation among lawyers. And Marco wasn't a SWAT team police officer. This is a, a case that you would have taken on? Yeah, I think that's a good question. So I'll start with our client. If I had gotten even a whiff of embellishment or not telling it to me straight from Marco or his fiance, we would not have pursued this case at all. But I found them to be 
incredibly straightforward and believable. I thought the timing of which when they called me, which was literally days after all these events transpired, and they were telling me in that moment what had occurred, like just days before, I just found it very believable. I mean, they were in the throes of this terrible thing. I mean, while they're smart people, they were not medically sophisticated people, and what they told me made sense. And we get clients of all different shapes and sizes and from all different walks of life. And had I gotten a different type of client who I was more skeptical of, didn't believe their story, thought maybe they were just looking to kind of cash in on a bad outcome, we would have avoided this case like the plague. On the other hand, to your point about Dr. K, so Dr. K, very well-known orthopedic surgeon, but not just because of the procedures that he performs, but because he is maybe the most well-known, quote, independent medical examiner in our part of the state. So he is the go-to orthopedic surgeon for insurance companies and defense law firms to hire to examine injured workers, injured plaintiffs, and a lot of times undercut their claims, you know, to support the defense. And there's a lot that goes into that. So number one, he is as professional of a and as polished of a witness as you can get. So that, in hindsight, I guess, I don't know if it would have changed my mind. I mean, I think we knew exactly what we were getting to anyway, but it goes a long way how good of a witness Dr. K is because he's done it so much. He is a you know true professional witness. And I think juries don't know that. Juries don't know that he testifies as frequently as he does and so forth. They just see this very you know, nice, unassuming, caring orthopedic surgeon, and it's very formidable. And I think that had a lot to do with, you know, how the case played out. Because look, we go to trial, the default, I think, for the vast majority of jurors, as it should be, is that, look, the doctor is caring, they're trying to do the best they can, they're not trying to hurt the patient. And then we've got the burden of showing Sometimes maybe the doctor wasn't caring or the doctor wasn't as smart or knowledgeable as they should have been. But a lot of times we have to show that, look, yeah, it's a good doctor. This, this is a good doctor. They were not trying to harm anybody. However, they made a very significant mistake in this particular case. Uh, it was something that no other doctor would have done under these circumstances. And whether that's because they're having a bad day or whatnot, it doesn't matter. But this was well below the standard of care. The care or lack of care here was a total outlier. And they have to be held accountable. They have to be taken to task when that happens and a really bad outcome occurs. That's the whole purpose of our civil justice system in part is for checks and balances like that. So, yeah, I mean, I think, and I've thought a lot about this case, and I think that the way that Dr. K testified, in part because of how good he is at testifying, it aligned him with the natural beliefs and we tried to, or I tried to take him off of, of what he looked like, to use the old reptile term. I, I tried to take him off code, but I don't think that I was successful, unfortunately, with the jury. And I think we could ask some questions about that later in terms of the approach you used to attack his credibility on cross-examination and why you selected certain evidence uh, that you did, or yeah, facts to cross-examine him on. Before we get there, can you just talk a little bit about how the case developed through the discovery process and whether there were any unanticipated events that kind of changed your outlook on the case? For instance, and I'll, and I'll lead in with this, I know that you were very, very bullish on this case for a long time for a good reason, but I do know that some uh, hiccups came up along the line with Marco and his, you know, his professional work. And I just wanted to see if that had any impact. I mean, I always reevaluate with different, you know, facts or issues that that come to be known. But I generally try to factor those into, you know, we do focus groups. And I focus group these different issues that come up. And so there was a handful of different issues that we focus group. Were they significant? Were they going to impact our likelihood of winning or not? And I'll just touch on a, a few different ones that we tested. So one of them was that uh, Marco, as part of the SWAT team, had for his personal beliefs, religious, physical, had refused to get the COVID vaccine. And as a result, he was 
terminated from the police force that he was affiliated with and was no longer a member of the SWAT team. And that had nothing to do with the the injury in question. I mean, he was on workers' comp at the time. I think he'd returned to work at that point. But, you know, we, we tested that with people and it was not, I mean, I was worried. I thought, you know, you might get a sect of the population that would have a big problem with that. But, um, you know, we just said, hey, we're not making a, an earnings loss or an income loss claim in this case. And, and uh, you know, Marco, everybody has their own beliefs about it and does what they think is right for them. And this was Marco's decision. This was the consequences. He's going to live with that. So I didn't think that one was, you know, that didn't impact me once I, I understood how jurors looked at it. What about in hindsight, though? Because when we look at a lot of these cases that we handle, we do look at what the person's their career, their job was before they were injured and whether they can continue to do that. And generally the rule is that if if your livelihood has been taken away from you, that's a pretty significant piece of evidence and theme really uh, for your case. But we didn't really have that. And, and can you just kind of, I mean, what do you think? I thought it actually, from my perspective, I thought it hurt, you know, that we were unable to, to get up there and say, Marco lost the ability to work as a police officer, to be a SWAT team member what he had really been working hard for his whole life. It was his dream job. He loved to help people and, and to be a part of our community like this. Not being able to to make that claim, I thought was tough. I don't think that's why, you know, so we'll let the cat out of the bag now that we unfortunately lost the case. We, we lost the trial. And that hurts terribly to say and to talk about, you know, it happens in our line of work as trial lawyers, especially as medical malpractice trial lawyers. Uh, you are going to lose some of these cases just because jury makeup and so forth. So would it have been ideal to have that whole story that the injury from the compartment syndrome and all these surgeries that led to his you know, significant disability and in turn ankle fusion was the reason that he could no longer be the police officer and the SWAT and a loss of his identity and so forth? Yeah, it didn't help. It didn't help for sure. But I don't think that that is at all why we lost the case. I think we did know from focus groups that they thought of him not being a police officer, not being a member of the SWAT team anymore was a loss of his identity. And I think that that can be a very powerful motivator for uh, juries to award damages for a worthy plaintiff. But I think it was things much more simplistic that they didn't necessarily even get to that point of why the case did not turn out the way that um, that we had hoped. Yeah, and, and I agree with you. I think really my thoughts are more in hindsight as, you know, we search for factors which may have contributed to the defense verdict, right? And, you know, things that may have turned the jury in the in the different direction, our direction. And I, I do remember, however, that during the discovery portion and the workup of the case, we were disappointed that we weren't able to make that earnings loss claim and to say that the delayed diagnosis of compartment syndrome contributed to the loss of his identity as a police officer and SWAT team member. No, I, I agree. And I agree with you too, though, that he, he's just such a stand-up guy and just lives such an active life, really a kind of a Hercules-type figure that it wasn't the end-all, be-all of the case. Yeah, agreed. And I think looking back in hindsight, and even while we were in the midst of it, and when we got jury research through our own focus groups, our sort of qualitative focus groups that you and I conduct, where we do small group focus groups and the larger big data type focus group that we did, that this case was, and I knew this from Jump Street, this was why I actually took the case, was because it was so polarizing. It was, it was an either-or proposition. It's either you believe what the patient said, what Marco said, that he told his doctor on Saturday and Sunday that he was having worsening pain that was not responding to pain medications in spite of having a nerve block. And if the jury believed that, and everybody agreed in the case, Dr. K agreed that, the other, pretty much all the medical witnesses, they agreed that if that had happened and Dr. K didn't tell him to go to the emergency room or get seen by a doctor, then Dr. K was negligent and at fault for the damages. On the other hand, if they believed that that was not what Marco had said and that Marco had said something to the effect of more like, you know, oh, my leg is numb, is this normal, this kind of thing, and did not indicate to Dr. K that he was having a lot of pain in spite of pain medications, that Dr. K was not at fault, was not negligent. And it was just, it was so black and white. It was either or. And that, as I look back on it, that bore out everywhere. I mean, in all of the 
smaller focus groups that I conducted on the case, there some were very favorable to us and others were not. And then we did a larger, we did one of the, the quantitative projects where we hire a company that then provides the fact patterns and polls and interviews, you know, more than a hundred different people and can draw statistically significant inferences about the case and so forth. And that came back as basically a coin flip. And I felt that, and this is based on our past experience, Greg, that from the focus group information that we develop, whether it's the focus groups we perform or the ones that are performed for us by other companies, in so many instances, have we been able to take the information we learned, modify the, our approach to the case by evidence we do stress or don't stress or don't put it in all or, or other factors that we address with landmines that were going to hurt the case that we figure out how to address ahead of time. I was confident that while the data was telling us we were a 50% chance to win, regardless that with the modifications we could make to the case and how I thought I could frame things, that our chances of winning would go up significantly. But I think in hindsight, I overestimated our ability to change the overall polarization of the case. And I think literally we lost kind of in a coin flip that, that we, we got a group of people and our jury, and these are good people, you know, and I, and I respect and appreciate all of them and their time, and, and I, don't, I don't have any ill will towards any of them, but I think that we got a particular group of people, you know, and it's usually some smaller group within it that rules the roost, that they were in that kind of segment of the population that was going to just naturally lean more towards the doctor than the patient. I think a lot of it comes down to that with just the particular type of case that this was. So with in terms of the focus group and the you know the big jury research project, I take it a little bit more with with a larger grain of salt only because you know they're looking at a 1500 word fact pattern. You know the the participants in that in that jury research project are limited to that sphere of influence and and on paper a doctor's not humanized, right? A doctor's not sitting you know, in front of the jurors or the people who are part of this project, you know, for seven days straight, they don't have an opportunity to look at his facial expressions or to see him on the jury stand for an hour or more at a time, multiple times in this case. And I just think, you know, in a, in a medical malpractice case, especially, I almost have to discount the results of the, the jury research project a little bit more. And, and this is something obviously we're thinking after the fact, right? Monday morning quarterbacking, but that human factor of the doctor and their lawyer doing a great job of, of showing the doctor is sort of a hero in the community, right? Or just a real stand-up individual. I mean, we could talk about it later, but Dr. K got on the stand and during his direct examination, the, the first thing the jury learned is about his father, who was also a doctor and sort of his mentor, passing away in, in recent months. And we heard more about his father in the, in the first five minutes of his testimony and all of the odds that Dr. K had to defy. Well, really, his father had to, to defy most of the odds because he came from Nazi Germany. But I think that those are the types of things that you just can't include in a jury research project and which could come back to, to hurt you. I agree with you. And I think that that's a good rule of thumb for medical malpractice cases in particular, that whatever your sense of the results coming back from your small group or big group focus groups, you got to sort of even add a another 10 to 15% uh, loss frequency to whatever results you're getting for the med mal to factor in the fact that when a jury sees the doctor or the nurse, that person there that life ostensibly was is focused on caring and treating people to help them get better, it's that much bigger of a hurdle for clients and for us to overcome. So I think that's a good rule of thumb under the circumstances. So you, you talked about how the jury research project and the uh, the focus groups helped you to modify the the way we would present the trial. Can you just talk a little bit about, you know, some of the ways that you used that jury research to uh, approach maybe some of the sore spots that that were anticipated in the case? Yes. So as I mentioned earlier, you can small group test specific issues. And so, you know, I did that with the not getting the vaccine issue. I did that with the fact that 
and it actually showed it was a it was a positive, but because of the immense amount of pain that Marco had gotten or that that he had developed as a as a result of all these surgeries and having all this muscle and nerve cut out of his leg, that for a period of time he became dependent upon his pain medications, but then you know on his own you know weaned himself off, and people found that to be very commendable and, and had no criticism of him in regard to that. So we knew those were good factors, but one of the I felt fascinating. Although who knows? I mean, maybe it didn't help the way we thought it would. So our clients, it turned out, had written a uh, version of the events of, of what they contended had been said. And they wrote it like two days after uh, Marco's first or second surgery, where they now knew that he had compartment syndrome that had been missed and, and he had all this dead tissue. And they wrote basically like a verbatim back and forth about what was said between uh, Marco and Dr. K. And I thought that was very helpful information to us because it wasn't just them speaking from memory, but they literally documented exactly what had been said. And on the other hand, as I mentioned earlier, in the course of discovery, uh, this was not in Dr. K's medical records, but we found out that Dr. K had written a several-page sort of narrative or a letter that he kept secret. He put in a drawer after this whole incident that he found out what had happened to his patient. And he he never turned it over to anybody and had, you know, admitted he had no intention of giving it to anybody unless he got sued, which in, you know, my lawyer mind made me think that he knew he had messed up and he was keeping this thing tucked away to use to, to as a get out of jail free type card. So we included both of those in the focus groups. And, and what we found I thought was very interesting was that the jury, not surprisingly, was very skeptical of after the fact or Dr. K's after the fact letter. But they were also extremely skeptical of Marco's after the fact uh, letter and felt that while Dr. K was creating his for purposes of kind of the get out of jail free or the exculpatory type letter, that uh, Marco's letter was to, to trump up and gin up a lawsuit, you know, and uh, immediately trying to, to set the stage to help him to get an outcome. And that was one of the biggest factors that people had a problem with in the case. And so we made the decision at trial not to ever bring up the fact that Marco and his fiance Ashley had written this document. And we felt that it was great for us because defense counsel never brought it up either. And so we felt like that was a major win. That was one of the most negative factors of our case was, was that letter. But there was other issues that were big negatives that we tried to tampen down, but couldn't totally. One of them being that on Sunday, after the second phone call between Marco and Dr. K, several hours later, that the pain was getting so out of control that our client called an emergency room nearby and talked to somebody. And they'd said, you know, you should come in. And that he did not immediately go in. And honestly, that led to him maybe delaying calling 911 by an hour and a half or so, which I thought was an insignificant amount of time. But I still knew that that was a significant piece of information and the defense did you know, harp on that. But in any case, I put a lot of stock in focus groups because I've seen them be so effective and helpful for us and for me in trial in the past. And I believe you kind of live and die with them. I mean, yes, you have to always reevaluate and think about, well, is this piece of advice totally on point or not? But generally, I'm thinking to myself, look, it's a data point. And if I'm doing them, why would I do them and then not at least rely in part on that information? So I put a lot of weight in them, I think, more than you do. Yeah, definitely. So, so let me explore that a little bit. So now you know that the letter is important to the focus group based on the fact pattern. So how much detail did you put in the fact pattern about the letter, and similarly, what was your plan in terms of how deep or far you were going to go into the substance of the letter and how you were going to use that at trial to our advantage? Well, I mean, you know, I think there was just the overall vibe that people got from a letter written after Dr. K had found out what had happened to his patient, that he would not make part of the medical record, that he would not included the electronic medical record, which a lot of people felt was his way of avoiding a timestamp having been put on it. And then, quite frankly, what I thought was pretty shocking revelation that he wrote it 
he read it, he stuck it in a drawer, and he kept the secret, and he literally testified that he was not giving that to anybody unless he got sued. And then I felt it got even better for us because we did sue him, and it, we found out that he gave it to his lawyers. But when we you know, written requests to them saying, do you have any writings of any kind? They essentially led us to believe that there weren't any. And it was only during his deposition that I found out that this letter existed and then I got a, co a copy of it. And as I said in closing argument, although it didn't make any difference, that proved that his own lawyers saw that letter under the circumstances and they realized it was not helpful for his case because if they thought it was helpful, that he had written this after-the-fact letter, they would have produced it to us in the initial discovery. And they didn't. And they tried to hide behind work product doctrine and stuff like that because I think they, in their heart, knew it looked really bad. But again, I think all of this, I think with the group of people that we wound up with on our jury, and, and again, we have very limited jury selection in our particular venue, and it's difficult to get into the jurors' you know, belief systems that they have and the way that they look at the world very much. We're, we're really kind of left to make very surface level decisions on the people that we select. And I think like, like any other sample size that this particular group of people was naturally more inclined to listen to the doctor than they were to listen to the patient. And I think and was told by one of the jurors who I spoke with afterward that it literally was as simple in their minds as this. So Dr. K performs the surgery Friday morning. And then that evening, he attempted to call Marco just to check in on him. That was kind of his standard practice to see how he was doing after surgery. Marco did not answer the phone. And so then Saturday morning, Marco calls and leaves a message with uh, Dr. K. And, um, you know, admittedly, Marco sounded completely fine on that voicemail in the morning hours of Saturday. But I think that's in part because A, Marco's tough, B, Marco's stoic, and C, that the you know full extent of the pain had not at all set in at that point, but he was starting to have some issues. So then Dr. K, who it turns out was out of town on some type of a trip, calls Marco back on Saturday, and then the, the, the evidence was that they talked again on Sunday. And while us and our vantage point are looking at that as patient talks to doctor twice on the weekend, doctor doesn't say, patient, you need to be seen, just whatever was said. That's sort of evidence of, of the malpractice right there. But in this particular panel of, of jurors that we had, for many of them, regardless of what else happened, what else was said in this case, doctor calling on Friday night, calling Saturday night, calling Sunday night to this patient, that checked off their box of caring doctor that met the standard of care. And I don't think that their analysis really went much further than that. I think it turned out to be that simple. And I think that other groups of people would have felt much differently about that. But I think that we know from confirmation bias that when you know, people kind of make their mind up about something that, wow, you know, this doctor talked to this patient on three separate occasions over the weekend, that's really impressive and above and beyond the call of duty, then they sort of ignore any of the other contradictory information that they hear because of uh, cognitive dissonance. It's painful to have to sit through and think about, oh, well, maybe this doctor wasn't being as forthcoming as, as my initial impression of him is. And they, they just discount any contrary information and they just search out throughout the rest of the trial other information that confirms their initial belief that doctor calling on three different times of the weekend is a reasonable good doctor, period, end of story. Well, I mean, it, knowing or believing what you do now in terms of the reasons why the jury reached their verdict, and how do you counteract that? How do you prepare for that? In this case, we went into pretty significant detail of the content of that letter to show that it made no sense, that it couldn't have been written right after the events in question because it just it's inconsistent, was inconsistent with the medical records, the ambulance trip sheet, the emergency department records for the first emergency department where Marco was taken by ambulance and then trauma records at uh, University of Pittsburgh. So should we have held back going into the, the content of the, the letters? And I'll just be more specific. I mean, there was one part where it said, Dr. K wrote, received you know a second call from Marco on Sunday. 
He said that uh, his leg was still numb and he had not taken any of his pain medication, but he was concerned that when the pain block wore off, he would need more medication than had been prescribed. And I told him that he could come to the office tomorrow and if he needed more pain medication at that time, we would take care of him. Right. I mean, we thought that was just, you know, those were cookies on the table, cookies on the plate. We could make Dr. K look foolish and make that secret letter look completely fabricated if we introduced that at trial. I mean, would you have still introduced the content and the substance of that letter, knowing what you know now? I think that letter was so devastating. And again, I just stand back to look no further than the fact that, that his own lawyers try to keep it secret. How many cases we have? And it's like, you know, if there's a surveillance video and the defense is giving it to you right away, well, then you know it's good for them. But if there's a surveillance video and it's missing or they haven't done it or there's, a, there's some kind of document or evidence and they, they don't have it, then probably it's bad for them. And I think that's exactly what happened in this particular case. I don't think defense counsel was expecting Dr. K to, for me, to, to get him to admit that there, this document did exist during the deposition. I think had that not happened, we never we would have ever known about that letter. And so I think that under every circumstance, I have no regrets that we dug into that letter because it was so preposterous. And the point that you were just making, what it said, was essentially that you know Dr. K was writing that he understood that the patient was talking about going through a week's worth of pain meds in less than 24 hours, which was basically the takeaway if you were to read his letter and ask what that meant, which just didn't make any sense. And, and I think we both knew that that letter was an after-the-fact recreation of what had said using bits and pieces of the truth and reframing it in a way that was a get-out-of-jail-free card, but it just didn't all add up. So I, I have no regrets about us focusing on that. I do, but I don't have a regret about this because again, I was following the data. And again, I don't think it would have made any difference, but I do in hindsight now kind of question whether we should have brought in Marco and Ashley's recitation of events to show what they were saying closer in time. Would it have made a difference? Probably not. I'm a big what ifer, and you know, you talked earlier in the in the podcast here about how, you know, maybe we could have approached the trial a little bit differently in terms of being a little bit more soft on Dr. K and getting across to the jury that we're not saying he's not a good doctor. We're just saying he made a mistake in this particular case with this particular patient. Yes. And I just wonder if like maybe by trying to show that the letter was an intentional fabrication. We were going too far in that opposite direction of sort of smearing Dr. K maybe. Again, this is all hindsight. We were using the data. We thought that would inflame a jury, which could be very beneficial if they're, if the jury is already leaning in your direction. But what do you think about that? I mean, you said you had no regrets and I, I, when you say it, you mean it. And I, I, I've known that about you. But do you think he could have been done any differently just to try to stay consistent with the theme of he's a good doctor, he just made an unfortunate mistake? And when I say I have no regrets, there are certain aspects of the trial that I have no regrets about. I have no regrets on relying on the focus group data uh, to the extent that I did. Um, I do have regrets about what you were talking about of how uh, I chose to frame and try to really polarize the case, which I think inadvertently, to use the term you just said, looked like a smear campaign on Dr. K. And obviously, unless you've got really, really reprehensible behavior in the case, that could very well backfire. And um, I don't think that that helped the way that it came off. I was trying to polarize it. It's either, look, you believe Marco, and we win, or you believe Dr. K, and we lose. Turns out they believe Dr. K. But I think I could have played it a lot smoother. And honestly, probably my biggest regret, just as kind of a, as a, a human, because I don't enjoy tearing down people or doing any type of cheap shot type stuff. And I think in hindsight that you know, there were aspects of the way that I approached the case in trying to polarize it, trying to show that Dr. K's position and testimony was so incredible that it crossed the line into 
being unfair. If I were to have a regret, that was it. You know, I, I think that's just not me. And uh, it certainly wasn't where the jury was feeling. And I didn't do as good of a job of taking the moral high ground as I would have liked. And I think that, I, again, I don't know if it would have made a difference with this particular jury panel, but I think it would have been a lot more consistent with you and me and how we practice law and the kind of people that we are to frame it more of maybe not even that Dr. K was, was trying to hide anything or change it, but you know, maybe he just didn't listen he didn't listen as well to this to this patient as he should have and approached it softer in that sense. And I think that maybe just in getting caught up in trying to polarize the case that it didn't play as the way that I would have liked it. And I think in turn of trying to do that so much, I, I made some decisions that in hindsight I would have not made. A perfect example, you know, was the People magazine article. Uh, you know, we had this very interesting statement that, that Dr. K had made in a very well-published article, but it was from a long time ago, but it was pretty relevant to the, to the issues in the case. But we had talked a lot about it. And I think you and other friends of, of ours had said not to use it, it, just for a variety of reasons. And I made a decision and I, I stick with it. You have to take chances to try to win cases that I, I, I utilized that. But as soon as I did, you know, I felt it wasn't sort of me, I think, is the takeaway. And I think it probably, you know, further turned off maybe some of the jurors that were still borderline. So, you know, I mean, you do the best that you can. You know, we're going to make mistakes in trials doing what we think is right in the moment. And after the fact, you start to think, I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have done that. But the things I don't regret, I don't regret how much effort and, and hard work that, that you put in, I put in, that our, that our client put in. I mean, they, they worked their butt working through the testimony because there was a lot, of, a lot of testimony to cover and just you know, had a hardworking client. I mean, that, that's what you want. You know, that's, that's the type of person that you want. And I still, I will always, and this case will always drive me crazy because I believe our client's version of the events. I know that that, you know, I know what they said happened, happened. Now, I don't think that, you know, it was anything um, evil or really ill-intentioned by Dr. K. I just don't think that he was as caring and didn't listen, you know, to our client. I just, I think that for whatever reason, he wasn't trying to hurt him. He didn't hear him out. He didn't listen to him. Didn't kind of, you know, err on the side of caution with him. And, and Marco was the one that, that wound up, you know, paying the price for that. Yeah, and it, it doesn't help too. I mean, there, there obviously there are other defenses beyond just the fact that Dr. K is a, a top-notch and upstanding doctor. Uh, there's the fact that this particular injury, which Marco had, which was a, uh, a fibular fracture, as serious as it is, there's a very low risk of compartment syndrome. And, and really there were only limited case reports in the medical lim literature of compartment syndrome arising after this type of relatively low force trauma, low force fracture. Hyper rare, hyper rare complication this was. Yeah, and, he, and even one of our own treating experts, doctors admitted that in his testimony. He, he brought it up on his own. So that that was a challenge in the case as well. And, you know, something we we had to get around. And we really, you know, we made the case more just about not listening to a patient who had pain and directing that patient to get evaluated immediately, given the, the setting, this post-operative setting. Right, because it could have been a variety of complications. Right. That was your idea. And that was the, that was the absolute, the right way to do it. You could not make that case. And, and the defense did a great job of bringing it constantly back to hyper-rare condition, hyper-rare condition, making it seem as though we were trying to claim that Dr. K should have diagnosed on the phone this hyper rare presentation of compartment syndrome after this fracture. And we were saying, no. And you had said, you know, this case can't be about that. This case is about patient reporting pain in this setting. You got to get him checked out because it might be an infection. It might be a clot, it might be a nerve injury, it might be rarely compartment syndrome. But, um, you know, jury, because I, I do, and I'm glad you brought that up. I think Dr. Tarkin, the subsequent surgeon, I mean, he's an amazing surgeon and a, an amazingly credible just figure in that case. And I think in hindsight that him saying, of all the people, him saying how hyper rare that compartment syndrome was, and he even said how, you know, that this was just unlucky 
for Marco, I think that was probably pretty devastating for our case. Uh, I, you know, I, I think that stuck out in people's minds, despite the fact that he had this incredibly compelling other testimony where he was dead certain that Marco had had compartment syndrome all weekend, given how dead the muscle was in his leg. And, and that was what we thought was our un, yet another silver bullet. You've got the world-class expert that has no skin in the game who operated on this guy after the fact, who says that I've been doing this for 30 years. I'm the best in the business. I've, I've treated a gazillion people with compartment syndrome. And it was, you know, it's clear to me as the day is long, he said, that Marco had compartment syndrome all weekend long. So I'm thinking to myself, how, how can you lose then? How can you lose? I mean, he had the condition. It wasn't as though, because the defense was trying to contend that that Marco's compartment syndrome developed after the second call with Dr. Khan. But here we've got the best expert in the world basically saying, no, 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 no. He had compartment syndrome the whole time. But again, wasn't enough. And I, and I think, you know, this gets to sponsorship too, Greg, where you, know, you got to sit and look at like, what's the overall net of this testimony? Yeah, that part really, I think, helps us. But is him saying that this is just bad luck and it's a hyper rare condition that happened to this guy, is that more of a negative then, then the other part is a positive to our case. We did so much to try to make this case, not just about what a doctor says versus a patient's word. And Dr. Tarkin's testimony as a whole was, I think, much more helpful, and you would agree, in doing just that. We provided as much evidence as we could from the medical treaters and from the medical records to demonstrate that Marco truly has significant serious pain at the time of those phone calls on Saturday and Sunday with Dr. K. But I think, you know, another thing that we, we just didn't anticipate and is important to keep in mind going forward, anytime we have a case based on what a doctor should have done in a scenario like this, especially when there was a phone call and words were exchanged, is we have to consider that Dr. K leaned into the standard of care in this case. We had, and, and, and I think it was an amazing defense. It was a great approach by the defense and by Dr. K to basically lean into cross-examination that had he been told that there was a, you know, a patient with serious pain post-operatively after this fracture, he would have sent them immediately to the hospital or to the doctor's office. He admitted that was the standard of care. And then he said, that's what he would have done. And well, we, we kind of salivated and looked at that as an admission of the standard of care, which was very helpful for us. I think once the jury was already leaning in Dr. Khan's favor and looking at, and into his side and looking at him as a caring doctor who had made these multiple calls to a patient over the weekend, I mean, that was an additional luxury for the defense to have him lean into it. Yeah. I think you're totally right. I think that was a great strategy uh, by them. I think that was one of those moments where Dr. K's just experience comfortably testifying before juries in settings like that, to say it the way that he did, because I can remember when that testimony came across, and I'm so biased in favor of, of Marco, um, but I think you're exactly right, that it just, from a common sense perspective, it's like, you know, he just seems so heartfelt about it that of course, if there was even a hint, I would, I would have done that, you know, and the jury's just like, yeah, there's, there's no way he, but, but again, Greg, you know, that, and why it's brilliant, because that capitalizes on the belief system that most people want that, you know, just world thinking, you know, that doctors are good, doctors are safe, doctors do the right thing, because I don't want to imagine a situation that this could happen to me or a loved one. And it's just, that's just people's self-preservation. And so when Dr. K confirms to the jury of what the standard of care is and that, of course, if, if this patient had said anything about pain to me, I would have been all over that. I would have gotten him checked out because that would have been very concerning to me. Yeah, it just fits right in with what jurors want to believe. And it, it was a great defense for them. I know it is not the case, but um, that's the way that it came across. It wasn't just our realization as well that that was uh, brilliant for the defense. It was one of the alternate jurors who actually told me after the trial that uh, that's why they they really believed him from the start, uh, or at least from you know from his testimony. You know, again, there's so many 
other ways it could have been played. And, and, and I really think we had a great approach to the trial uh, and it didn't work out in our favor. But I did want to ask you, in terms of your cross-examination of Dr. Khan, did, did you attempt, or well, I know you didn't, but why didn't you attempt to go into his past as a paid expert for all these workers' compensation cases and his millions of dollars probably at this point made in that line of work? Well, ironically, I thought it was irrelevant and um, gratuitous, which is sort of funny because of some of the approaches, other approaches I took in the case. But I just felt it was such a a sideshow that to go down into that was, it was just going to, you know, there was, there would have been so much to cover. And what point was I trying to get across to the jury with that, that, oh, well, he's been a paid expert in other cases, so you shouldn't believe him in this case, that he's not being paid and he's being sued in. I just, I just didn't see how it was going to move the ball for us. I mean, maybe you could argue that had we done that, it would have highlighted to the jury what a good professional polished witness he is. But I just almost think that's so nuanced and higher level. That point would not have been made to most of the, of the jurors. And also, I mean, defense counsel, that was one of the things that they really wanted to avoid coming out. And we had issues in the case, you know, motions in limine and so forth that we didn't want to come out. And so a lot of times in order to help with the information that you don't want coming into the case, you, you, re, you, know, you, you work with people. And so I was fine to kind of horse trade with defense counsel on that issue because I wasn't planning to really go into it anyway. And, you know, conversely, probably some of the things that, you know, we didn't want to have brought up in trial, you know, they weren't going to bring up anyway. And, and so that's just the way that that kind of works out sometimes. Um, one thing I do uh, want to talk about, and, and we can always in another case talk about some of the specific breakdowns of, you know, how I structured opening and some of the things I said in closing and so forth. But one thing I've been thinking a lot about is, you know, you hear about lawyers and I've done it a little bit here and there. I did it kind of in Corsetti where I sort of just parachuted in last second. I didn't, I didn't know a lot about the case. I had, you know, very little invested in the case from a uh, energy and emotional standpoint. And that case was so easy and fun for me to try with you. And I think I, I was really happy with how I did everything in that case. Whereas in this case, I had literally been living with this case since days after Marco first suffered his catastrophic injury. And I really can't say how fond I am of Marco. I just, I thought he's just such a good guy. I just, I just really like the guy a lot. And I really wanted to just win for him so badly. And uh, it was extremely stressful uh, to try that case because of how badly I wanted to win for him because I cared about him so much. And I think in hindsight that that probably was counterproductive to the way that I tried the case because I think I almost had this kind of just desperate desire to win for him. And maybe I wasn't as. I don't want to say carefree, but as loose as I would like to have been with cross exams and different things. And I think just my overall vibe was I had a heart, a much harder edge to me, which, you know, I think gave the, our whole case kind of this like just vibe that I don't think was helpful to the jury. Okay. And so part of me wonders sometimes if it's, more productive as a trial order to come in when you haven't been the one working it up, you know, from the beginning and, and jumping in and looking at it with fresh eyes, you know, because that's the other thing is you get, you get fixated on things, you know, you, you, you see things and, and, and rather than seeing it all at the end, the whole package and then getting to pick apart, you know, there's certain aspects of the case that because I would live with them for three plus years, I was, seeing it a certain way. And maybe I would have seen things a different way, a better way, and would have approached the case in a different way had I not been living with it and just thinking about it so much for so long. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I think you also have to consider that, yeah, there's maybe this personal component to it, but at the same time, it was not an easy case. You're right. It was. We knew that from the data. We knew that from the data. We did. But I, I think, you know, to be honest, I think at times that 
we had so much evidence though. Do you know what I mean? And I and I just think that we we looked at this because of the evidence and because of what we knew about Dr. K as a case where we had a real opportunity to to win a a, a tough case against a tough doctor. And and we didn't want to squander that opportunity. You didn't want to squander that opportunity. No, and I still can't to this, like, you know, despite everything that we're candidly talking about here, regrets, things I would have done differently, so on and so forth, which we're only talking about and thinking about because we lost, I can't believe we lost that case. I, I just, I literally can't because the evidence was so compelling in our favor that it, that's the only thing that still keeps me up a little bit here and there. I'm just, I'm like, how, how could a jury, and that's, I, that was one of the things I said to them. I said, if for you to find in Dr. K's favor, then you're making a public declaration that you're okay with doctors going back into your medical records and changing them after the fact to, you know, fit their narrative. And you're okay with doctors writing secret memos about what they claim that happened that are complete CYAs for their own case because they know that they messed up and they're going to get sued. And you're okay with that. And this jury was okay with that. And I just, I don't think that most people are. So I, I still, it just is what it is as, as far as, as that's concerned. It just, um, the, the chips didn't fall in our favor, uh, but I don't think it was because it wasn't a righteous case. It was a tough case. Sure, of course it was. Uh, but it was a very righteous case that I think that we win a lot of the percentage of the time and we just didn't in our one shot. Yeah, and remember too, Marco walked in and out of that courtroom and sat there the whole time every day. You know, we often talk about not just having your client in the courtroom, you know, and how that could impact the jury if they're not completely disabled, but just the fact that he's able to live his life and, and move on. You know, he's not gonna he's not gonna be destitute. He'll be able to work. You know, maybe all things considered, you know, weigh, weighing his injuries against holding a doctor responsible, this particular jury just didn't have the ability to to look beyond the doctor status and and what, as you said earlier, that could do to their own health care, right? Right. Or their own image of of a doctor being a protector and a right. a savior for our society. When you're going to trial, and we were not given any option. I mean, do, Dr. K did not consent, and so we had to try this case. And these are just difficult cases. You're going to lose sometimes. That's part of the. And that's just part of that comes with the territory. But I believe that I know I put my heart and soul into that case. And just as I have other ones that I've, that, that I've won and we've won and, and this one didn't work out the way that we hoped, but you know, that's going to happen. You know, I learned a lot, um, as I always do, always learn more probably from losses than wins and, um, you know, going to apply it and we'll never forget the case. We'll never forget a lot of it. Never forget Marco you know, but uh, hopefully we can take what we learned and, and apply it to uh, help other clients in the future. Well, Brendan, do you have any pro tips for the people out there before we sign off? I think the pro tip would just be that what I learned in, in closing in this case. So I have a, a couple of different arguments in closing that, you know, you have heard many times before that when you win, they are incredibly compelling. And, you know, I've had jurors tell me, oh, that was, that was a great argument that really helped me see and understand this particular point. You know, but then when, you know, in this particular case, you know, one of my arguments in particular, uh, we'll call it the evil man argument, which we can talk more about in another podcast, was a turnoff to, to some of the jurors. And you could think to yourself, oh, geez, like I made a mistake there. And I don't think that I did make a mistake because when you're going into closing, you have to believe that there is a significant portion of that jury that's for you. And you need to empower them, you need to motivate them, and you need to go all in. You can't factor in that, well, maybe I'm losing this case and I got to come up with an argument that's going to help me, you know, pull a, a rabbit out of the hat. I think my trial tip is that is when you get to closing, you've got to believe, and I did believe, I did believe we had that case at that time. You've got to believe that, that you are winning, that the majority of those people are going to fight for you in that deliberation room and arm them and motivate them and empower them as you would to get the win for your client. And I did it and it uh, fell flat and people probably thought I was a you know, theatrical butthead uh, but that's just because they weren't with us. They just they just weren't with us, and that's okay. Well, you did your job. You believed in this case, and it was a just case, and we won't go beyond that. 
So thank you, Brendan, for, for being there for the victims of medical malpractice with your compelling arguments. No, Greg, thanks. They really stir me, and I'm just the guy sitting in the chair sure. watching your closing. No, you're, you're the man, and I can't do it without you. I appreciate it, and uh, we just keep marching forward. It's, uh, it's uh, righteous work that we're doing. So I think it's a good place to stop, and uh, you know we'll, we'll jump into some new and interesting topics that are going to dovetail off of a lot of what we talked about in these first three podcasts in the future. Another podcast in the books, a somewhat painful one, but uh, at the same time, process and product and trial that I'm still proud of. So thanks. And until next time, thanks for listening to uh, the Trial and Medical Air podcast. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Trial and Medical Error. We hope our discussions have equipped you with actionable insights to lift your clients above the hurdles of medical malpractice litigation. Ready to refer or collaborate on MedMal in catastrophic injury cases? Visit our attorney referral page at pamedmal.com forward slash refer. See you in the next episode.